If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it to Judges chapter 9. We're going to leak a little bit into Judges 8 and then a little bit into Judges 9. But if you're in Judges 10, if you're in Judges 9, you can see we'll be on both ends. And if you want to use the Bible in front of you, we're going to be on page 208, 209, and then 210 this morning. Now, I don't know if you've ever been doing something. Maybe you're working on a project at work. Maybe it's a, a project at school or you're just trying to do something. And as you're doing it, it begins to get harder and it begins to get more complicated. And maybe you find yourself in that process asking the question, maybe even out loud, why are we doing this? When I started working on the message on Judges 9... Do you know what question came across my mind? Why are we doing this? And I realized there was no one else in the room, and it was my idea to do this study. And I'm like, wow, this is a really ugly chapter. Judges 9 is ugly. I saw some stuff. A pastor in the Twin Cities described Judges 9 as an illustration of the total depravity of humanity. If you want to see the terrible things that we are capable of doing to each other, just go to Judges 9 and you have got the great example of that. Not that you want a great example of that, but there is one in Judges 9. That's what it is. And as I was thinking about that, why are we doing this? And I'm thinking, I'm going to stand up and talk about this. Like, why? I'm like, okay, let's back up. So I backed up all the way to August 20th. When we went through, I gave you four reasons why we're doing a series through Judges. And as we went through those four reasons that day, I looked at them again and went, you know what? Reasons two, three, and four maybe have bearing on why we're looking at Judges 9. So let me review those reasons. So reason number two, why are we doing this series? That through the decline and failure of Israel, so that we could see the beauty of God and the beauty he offers us in his love. Reason number three, so our lives are immersed in God's grace and mercy, not our sin. And reason four, so we walk with the Savior and not with self-destruction. Now, with those reasons in mind, I want to give you kind of my goal for today, what I hope we're going to accomplish in the time we have looking at these verses. And here it is. Through the serious level of decline and failure, and there's a lot of it through that, that we would see God's beauty and love so that it does something in us, so that we do long to immerse ourselves in God's grace and mercy and walk with our Savior, that we'll want to walk with Jesus, that by looking at Judges 9, we'll say, I don't want to go there, I want to go to Jesus. And I don't want sin and all that, I want God and God's presence in my life. I want His grace and mercy. Okay, that's what we're going to try to do. Now, if we're going to meet that goal, what we're going to try to do, kind of the path we're going to follow to get there, is I want us to answer three questions related to Israel's decline and sprinkled in that, see, is there any kind of God's beauty wrapped around it? And then at the very end, I want to ask sort of two more questions that hopefully will set us up for applications that we can take coming out of this, Okay. So what are the three big questions? Well, big question number one about Israel's decline would be this. What creates decline? What is it that causes decline to happen? Now, Judges 9 is really a sequel and, in a sense, a climax to the story of Gideon. 
Okay, so the decline in Judges 9, what we're going to see in Judges 9 really flows out of Judges 8. So Judges 8 ends this way, verse 33 to 35 of Judges 8. It says this, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Okay, those three verses really give us two answers to why decline happens or what creates decline. The first answer, really simple, out of verse 34 is this. They forgot about God. Why did the decline happen? Because we for, when does decline happen? Decline happens when we forget about God. Now, to be honest, not only did they forget about God, but they replaced God. And I don't want us to miss the impact or the implication of that in our own lives. See, you and I, just like the people of Israel, can lose sight of God or forget God, kind of slide God off to the side. I literally have a friend who years ago told me, I'm putting God on the shelf. We can do that. We can push God aside. And when we push God aside, we displace him. Somebody else is going to come in. And the truth is, that's never going to go good. A long time ago, the pastor that I grew up under wrote a book on Judges. And, and when he came to talk about Judges 9, he said this. He said, if God is not king a usurper will always fill that place. We need to understand, folks, if you and I come to the place where we kind of forget about God, where we kind of displace God, something else is going to fill that spot in our lives, and that will not go well. All that does is set us up for decline. Decline happens if God gets forgotten. Second answer coming out of those verses in Judges 8, what does decline produce or what, produces, what creates decline is we forget about God, but notice in verse 35, they also forgot about the impact of God's goodness in their lives. They forgot about what God had accomplished for them. See, if we forget about God, we're going to forget about what God did and his goodness See, in verse 35, it says they forgot about Gideon's family. They forgot about all that Gideon had done. They forgot about the impact, the goodness that Gideon brought into their lives, the goodness of God Gideon brought. They just forgot about it, which means there's an implication we need to see in that in our own lives. If you and I forget about God, we push God aside, we will forget about the incredible impact brought by God, by his goodness, which means think about it. What's the incredible goodness that God brought to our lives? He brought to us the Lord Jesus who went to the cross, who died in our place and rose again. Jesus died for our sins and rose again to give us life. We were dead without Christ and God makes us alive. And when we forget about God, we forget about the impact of that, all of a sudden we walk away. Decline happens when we forget God and God's goodness. Now, maybe a question to ask is, why does that happen? Why would somebody, you, me, somebody else, why would we forget about God, and why would we forget about the decline in our lives? Well, to answer that question, we probably need to think about 
in one sense, the big picture, the story behind Judges 9. See, there's an oddity in Judges 9. Up till now, every time something's gone really bad in Israel, it's because of an external army that's coming, a threat from the outside. But in Judges 9, there is no external threat. The destruction, the decline, the failure of Judges 9 all comes through a guy named Abimelech. And we met him last week. And Abimelech is Gideon's son. The threat, the destruction, what caused them to forget about God, push God aside, wasn't because of something outside. It was because of something inside. In a sense, Judges 9, folks, tells us in a symbolic way that you and I can forget God. We can forget God's goodness towards us because of stuff inside of us. Decline can come into anyone's life because of the corruption and sin in our lives. That's sobering. And maybe we need to be a little uncomfortable, but that's how it works. They say, that doesn't really look beautiful. No, it doesn't. So where is God's beauty? Oh, this is all decline. Is there anything of God's beauty? Well, I want you to think about this. You and I can forget about God. They did in Judges 9. They forgot about God. They pushed him aside. And yet, God still pursues people. I want you to think about the cross. I want you to think about the Lord Jesus coming. God sent the Lord Jesus to a people who forgot about him to a people who pushed him aside. And the amazing thing is, when God sent his son, he sent his son to die in our place for our sins and to rise again. And we can be impacted by that. We can be literally, our lives changed from death to life when we repent of our sins and we trust the Lord Jesus alone. God does that. We forgot about him, but he brings the true king, the ultimate savior but not only does God bring the ultimate Savior, but when you and I turn from sin to God, we trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior, then God sends the ultimate transformer. He sends the Holy Spirit into our lives to address that corruption in our lives, to address the things in us that aren't right, and brings the transforming work of God into our lives to make us like Christ. That is the beauty of God. To people who forget him and are all damaged because of it, he brings whole lives. He brings new lives. That's the beauty of God. Question two. We've talked about what creates decline. What does decline produce? I mean, what is it that decline produces? Well, based on the story of Judges 9, it's going to produce at least four products. Now, I don't think this is an exhaustive list. There's more that decline produces, but Judges 9 is going to focus in on four products, okay? The first product is this, selfish ambition. When decline begins to happen, when God's no longer the true king, something's going to fill that spot. And in this case, selfish ambition wants to fill that spot. This is exactly where Judges 9 starts. So Judges 9, verses 1 and 2. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you? 
or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Well, with Gideon gone, Abimelech looks around and goes, they need a leader. And you know what? I am the one they need. I'm the guy. I am the one that should be here. Now, think about this. We've talked about this pattern in Judges. And the pattern was, every time there was a decline, God was the one that brought in a new leader. God was the one that brought in the new judge. But when decline happens, when you forget about God, when you displace God, all of a sudden things are different. And so Abimelech says, I'm going to step in. His selfish ambition drives him to try to take control. Well, what does that look like? Well, verses 4 to 6. And they gave him, this would be referring to the people of Shechem, the leaders of Shechem, they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bereith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest brother of Jer- Jeroboam, was left for he hid himself and all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Abimelech's selfish ambition was rewarded by being king. They made him king. But his selfish ambition also meant when it says 70 sons killed on one stone, This isn't a battle scene. This is a, we captured them, and one after another, Abimelech would have killed them at that stone, would have probably beheaded them. Like I said, this is ugly, but that's what selfish ambition leads to, a lot of ugliness. Product number two, not only does selfish ambition come, but a product number two, what else does decline produce? Decline produces ignoring God's best. When you let decline come in, when decline takes over, we're going to ignore God's best. You know, the Bible begins in Genesis 1, and when it talks about us being made as people, made in the image of God, God uses the words to be fruitful and multiply. Those words really do speak of the fact that God's desire for people is to bring blessing. Grammatically, the way that's set up, it's not meant to be sort of, hey, you do this, you get this. No, it's meant to be the outpouring of the blessing of God. See, that's one of the things we need to understand about God is God wants to bless people. He made us in part because he wants us to know his blessing. And that doesn't change even though you forget God. God still wants to bring blessing. This story as it unfolds is going to highlight that. Look at verse 7. When it was told to Jotham about what happened to his brother, he went and stood atop Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Now, Jotham really is going to play this role. He is going to remind the people of Shechem that God wants to bless. You say, where do you get that from? Well, Mount Gerizim, which would have been right outside Shechem, has been known since Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 29, as a place of blessing. You can read in the book of Deuteronomy, you can read in the book of Joshua, stories, and Mount Gerizim is always on the blessing side. And Jotham goes up there in part to say, God wants to bless. Now, in essence, he realizes the people may be headed in the direction of decline, away from God's blessing, so he says, hey, 
you need to hear me so that God may listen to you. In essence, he's saying, hear what this is going to be said so you can turn back to God. You can cry out to God, and instead of going to decline, you can head toward his blessing. Now, to help get that through, Jotham's going to tell a parable, and the parable is about asking different trees to be king. Now, it's an odd parable. It's probably not something we're really, really familiar with. But each of the trees kind of turns down the offer because they have something to contribute, something to the blessing of God. They have to contribute so they can't take over this other role. God didn't design them for that role. They're just going to bring God's blessing. But they're still looking for a king, kind of like, hey, what you guys just did. Then comes down to verse 15, the bramble. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, the word picture created doesn't exactly sound like it's a good idea. Bramble is not some big, enormous tree. It's basically a short weed-like thing. So how do you get shade under weed? Bramble's basically only used, its only purpose was to burn things. It really wasn't any good. It was kind of fuel. It's not going to give you shade. See, the point of the parable seems to be you're turning in a direction, people, that God doesn't want for you. You're turning away from God's best. And that's never going to lead to good things. That's never going to be good. Verse 16 to 19, he's going to add to his story, so to speak. Now, therefore... If you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. Jotham's kind of suggesting, you know what? Hey, if you're operating in faith, if you really are doing this in faith before God, great. That'd be wonderful. But his message in verse 18 is you're not. You're not operating in faith. Look at what you did. Look at you executed innocent people. You took their lives for no reason. They were walking away from God's best. And folks, you and I need to understand if God's best is a life of freedom and we walk away from God's best, we walk away from God's blessing, that means you're headed towards a curse. Look at verse 20. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. When you walk away from God's best, you are setting yourself up for a disaster that would devour everything around it. Product number three. Not only do we get that, but a third product, we get a dog-eats-dog dog world. 
When decline shows up, we're going to have a lot of nasty things happening. Now, the bulk of Judges 9 makes it clear there was no good faith between Shechem and Abimelech. There wasn't. We need to skip down and look at verse 25 with me. The leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against, who would be against Abimelech, against his rule, basically, on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by along them that way. And it was told to Abimelech. Okay, Abimelech has just been at this point king for three years. Okay, they're supposed to be in this great partnership. He's to reign over them, but the people he's ruling over basically go into rebellion. They are trying to set up things to undermine the one who is their king. They're in revolt against him. Now, I'm going to trust that you either read Judges 9 or you can read it later today because the reality is that rebellion is going to just only grow. Starting in verse 26, a guy named Gael is going to show up in Shechem and he is going to rally the troops, so to speak. He is going to stoke the fire of getting the rebellion of Shechem against Abimelech to grow and grow and grow. And it reaches a point where Abimelech basically has one guy in the city Zabul, who's on his side. And Zabul sends him a message and says, hey, we got a problem with Gael. And so Zabul says, I've got a plan. And he lays out a plan to Abimelech to basically deal with Gael and all the problem. And the short version is, the plan worked really, really well. Gael got pushed aside, basically run out of town, and a whole lot of people got killed. It's pretty bad. And you'd think, okay. All this revolt, it's done. Everything should be fine now, right? Not in a dog-eat-dog's world. Look with me down at verse 42 to 45. On the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. I mean, they're like, okay, everything's done. It's taken care of. We can go back to work. Normal day, right? Verse 43. He took his people and divided them into three companies. Uh-oh. And set an ambush in the fields. Uh-oh. And he looked and he saw the people coming out of the city. So what did he do? Hey, guys, good to see you. Glad you're back at work. No, the verse ends. So he arose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon those who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he razzed the city and he sowed it with salt. Now, maybe Abimelech was mad because of the rebellion back in verse 25. We don't really know. But what we do know is this. The people thought everything was good, so they were going back to normal life. But in a dog-eats-dog world, it's not normal. And Abimelech came intent on bringing as much destruction as he possibly could. Think about this. The king attacks his people, goes to war against his people, and kills them. I mean, to put it in a collective thing, that would be like, and I'm saying like, President Biden today saying to the 185th, you are on full alert and you are to take out everybody in Sergeant Bluff, in Sioux City, in South Sioux City, in North Sioux City, and for fun, we'll throw in Hinton. And if we have time, we're going to go to Lawton and Bronson and Moville. We'll just take them all out. 
And then we're going to destroy the city and we're going to pour salt on it. And why did they pour salt? They were making the ground useless. Abimelech was doing as much as he could to bring destruction. It wasn't exactly good. Now you'd think, is he satisfied yet? No. Verse 48 and 49. And Abimelech went to the mount to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down the bundle of the brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with them, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Jotham's parable. If you guys aren't in good faith, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be fire out of Abimelech to devour you. Huh. This kind of looks like fire coming out of Abimelech and devouring him. Well, we got half the parable. What about the other half? Like I said, this is really depraved. Look at verse 50 down to verse 54. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against the Bez and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and the women and the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in it, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. It worked the first time, let's do it again, right? And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they save me. A woman killed him, and his young man thrust him through, and he died. The parable played out. A dog-eats-dog world simply gets more violent and more ugly. And Judges 9 just simply feels like a mountain of destruction and waste. Product number four. There's a fourth product that comes out. When decline shows up, a fourth product is, comes, and that product is the judgment of God. The judgment of God shows up. Folks, when decline is created because people turn away from God, God is going to address it. God will bring his judgment. He does deal with sin. Look back at verses 22 to 24. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech and on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. What Abimelech and Shechem did was wrong. It was evil. It was sinful. And God moved in judgment to deal with their sin. Look now, really quickly, verse 56, 57, the end of Judges 9. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham the son of Jeroboam. God dealt with their sin. God will always deal with sin. Something you and I need to know. 
God will always deal with the sin of his people. That means God will deal with our sin. Now, at this point, you're saying, again, this is just really ugly. Is there anything in this fall, devastation, destruction, is there any beauty? Well, I want you to hear the words of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, realizing in a declined world, what does God do? Hear these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Here's the amazing thing about God. Into an ugly world, a world that pushes God aside, forgets God, where God could just simply come and smack us in judgment and he'd be right to do it. He steps into that world in the person of the Lord Jesus to bring his redeeming and restoring work. You want to say, what's the beauty of God? The beauty of God is even though you reject him, he comes and he brings his love. He comes and he brings his mercy. He comes and he brings his grace. There's a whole lot of ugly, there's a whole lot of evil in this chapter in Judges 9. But God's sovereign over it. God brings his judgment. But when God brings his judgment, he also brings his savior. He also brings his redeemer. There is beauty of God in all of this. Question number three. Question three is much quicker than question two, okay? Just want to reassure you. Question three, what can decline not stop? I mean, it seems like this decline is just like this avalanche coming down the mountain, just taking out everything in its way. Can anything stop decline? God can stop decline. Look at the very opening words of chapter 10, verse one to three. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived in Shamar in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamar. After him arose Jaar the Gileite, who judged Israel 22 years. Now I realize the grammar there is very quick. It's very short. We don't know much about these guys. But please realize this. Those verbs are passive. Somebody caused this to arise. You read Judges 9 and God is virtually seemingly ignored. He's not there. He's not mentioned. He's not talked about. And you kind of get the feeling maybe God was just absent or silent. And maybe you and I in our lives feel like God is absent. God's silent. God's not there. This decline thing, God just got pushed aside, and so God's retired somewhere. Please understand, Judges 10, the way it starts is a hint. Even if it seems like it's hard for us to see God, he is still active. He is still moving. He is still doing things. God judges and God brings deliverance even when we miss it. 
Folks, you and I may struggle to see the beauty of God, but it's present. It's active. I pray to some measure we've accomplished the goal of today. Kind of reminds you to say, hey, we wanted to see. Reason number two, why are we doing this series? So that through the decline and fall of Israel, that we would see the beauty of God and the beauty his love offers us. We'd see that. I mean, Judges 9, there's a lot of failure there. There's a lot of decline to see. But I pray, even though we looked at that, you saw coming up behind it. God's beauty, God's love. But what about reasons three and four? What about you and I saying, hey, our lives are immersed in God's grace and mercy, not our sin? What about us walking with the Savior, not with self-destruction? What should you and I walk out of here with so that our lives are impacted and are changed? Again, two really quick application questions, sort of diagnostic questions to set us up. What needs to happen in my life so I don't go to decline? I go to God's freedom. Question number one very simply is this. Who is your king? Who is your king? I mean, if we're going to go from decline and failure to freedom, we need a king to get us there. And the only king that can get us from there to freedom is the true king, and the true king is Jesus. So let me ask you, have you trusted Jesus alone as your savior? Because there's no way to get from decline and failure to freedom without him. You need to trust him. And maybe some of you are saying, yeah, I've trusted him. Well, then let me ask you the question connected to that. Are you, as you live life, submitting to the king every day? See, if we're going to live in the freedom, it's freedom of following the king. Are we trusting the king? So who is your king? Second diagnostic question, using words that Jotham used. Are you living in good faith and integrity? Asking those questions, we're really saying, if you're a follower of Christ, what we mean by a follower of Christ, are you someone who's turned from sin to God? You've repented of your sin and you trust Jesus alone as your Savior. That should impact your life. Are you living that impact? You see, to people who've trusted Christ, Ephesians 4.1, Philippians 1.27, Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 12, all those verses basically say the same thing. They command us, they call us to live our lives worthy of the gospel. Now, that's not talking about performance. That's not talking about perfection. That's not talking about sort of some image management facade kind of a thing. No, it's saying, are you clinging to Jesus and following him? Are you walking with him through life? You see, folks, you and I on our own are going to go to decline and failure. We're going to go to selfish ambition. We're going to go to a dog-eats-dog world. But to live in freedom, we need to have the right king, and we need to cling to him. We need to live a life worthy of the gospel, which means I'm clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone. Judges 9 presents us a whole lot of evil, a whole lot of ugly. 
but the beauty of God is offering us life. Which are you and I going to choose today? Which are you and I going to choose today? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word and your kindness. I thank you for your mercy. Lord, we sang about your mercy. And we sang about it because we need it. We sang about it because we need our lives immersed in your grace, in your mercy. We need to live life following the Savior. Father, I pray and ask, would you move us to really look at who's the king, who's calling the shots? Would you challenge us? Would you stir us to really look at, am I living following the king? Father, I pray you would stir in us and you'd create a longing in us that we would so want to be immersed in your grace, in your mercy. And we would so want to walk following the Savior. Father, thank you for the chance to be here and to see the ugliness and failure of Israel. Failure that we can replicate in our lives. But Father, beyond it, would we see the bigness of your beauty, the bigness of your mercy, and would we live in your mercy today. In the very precious and powerful name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.